You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome Stephen Nadler and Lawrence Shapiro to talk about their book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. From conspiracism to denialism, bad thinking is all around us today. And we'll be talking about the morality of thinking and how philosophy can help us deal with the problem of bad thinking. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. And if you find yourself appreciating the podcast, please do not forget to subscribe, to like, to comment, and to write to us. We very much appreciate it. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Stephen Nadler and Lawrence Shapiro about bad thinking. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is October 19th, and for this short segment, we're going to discuss the conflict between Israel and Hamas that everyone is talking about right now. We have a number of points of things we want to get across in this conversation. We can't really get super in-depth on all these points, but we felt it was important as an organization to have some statement, some kind of response to what's going on right now. Yeah, I, I think the most important thing that we've got to say is we condemn what Hamas has done. We condemn what Israel is doing in Gaza right now, the taking of civilian hostages, the collective punishment against Gazan Palestinian civilians. This is absolutely horrendous. The death toll is absolutely horrendous on both sides. Gaza and, and, and Israel together, you're talking about 11 and a half million people. So multiply that by 30 before the United States and equivalent. And, and we're talking about well over uh, hundreds of thousands of, of dead, dead and injured. And the, it's coming out, you know, from both sides, which is basically to say that there is no distinction between civilians and the, you know, Israeli government and military, or no distinction between Hamas and, and the Palestinian people. It's all horrible. I heard President of Israel say that, uh, you know, it's not just Hamas and Islamic Jihad that are responsible, but the people of Gaza, because they could have risen up against Hamas. And, you know, you get Hamas treating civilians, you know, people going at a, at a music festival, treating them as if they are combatants. Absolutely horrible. And it just has to be condemned. We're not the only people condemning it, but we have to add our voice to the condemnation. We should point out that there's been a lack of condemnation of Hamas coming from some groups on the left that we would expect would have the basic moral decency to condemn just a brutal terrorist attack launched by Hamas. There have been character characterizations by some on the left of the Hamas attack referring to it as like some kind of legitimate self-defense or like a, this is what you get for doing for Israel doing what it's doing kind of response. There have been some really shocking celebrations of the Hamas terror attack, including this rally from the Democratic Socialist America in New York City, where reportedly people were celebrating the killing of, of innocent Israeli civilians, chanting the number 700, because apparently at the time 
that was how current casualty count when rally took place. Yeah. And meanwhile, in the U.S., they get a ratcheting up of attacks against uh, Palestinians, you know, in the United States, Muslims, Jews. OK, and this is this is just part of that that hate. The stuff you're talking about, it's just this rising, you know, sentiment of, of hate. And I, you know, it can call itself left, but it's reactionary. Yeah. It's just sad to see even groups that I thought would, um, you know, there'd be a lot of people calling for, rightly calling for a de-escalation of the conflict and criticizing what's going on in Gaza right now. But I would, I was sad to see some groups that I expected to have a more robust or balanced statement only talking about the aggression against Gazans by Israel and not talking about Hamas at all in their statements. Even like the group Never Again Action, which is a Jewish group in the United States that does immigration reform, I was just reading their statement this morning. Maybe they don't, they're not an Israel-Palestine-related group, but they're a Jewish group. They put out a statement, and it just talked about all the bad stuff Israel's doing. It didn't mention Hamas at all, and I was surprised. Because I think a lot of people are wary to even get involved with these protests in support of the people of Gaza because they're they're worried they're going to go to a protest and end up marching next to a bunch of anti semites who are cheering Hamas. And if you don't mm-hmm. like put it, if you don't immediately put a statement out clearly at the beginning that you are condemning terrorism and violence against civilians on both sides, then you you really don't have a moral leg to stand on, and you're a lot of people are just like not going to show up to these events if they don't feel comfortable with the messaging. Anyway, second point we want to make is that Netanyahu is not Israel. The expansionism that Netanyahu is overseen and encouraged is not popular within Israel. Obviously, we had a whole podcast recently about all the massive protests against Netanyahu. His policies are not, and and his politics and Netanyahu is not or not the face of all is Israelis. Right. On the 11th and 12th, the main biggest Israeli newspaper did a poll and support for him and, you know, his allied parties just plummeted. They now have like support of like 35% of the, the population with 65% opposition. And most of that is Jewish parties more to the left or, or, or you know, Arab parties in Israel. So, no, I mean, a great deal of sentiment in, in, in Israel is, has been strongly against Netanyahu for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of which is he's made them very unsafe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's contributed to deaths of, you know, over a thousand people in their country and so forth. Not to mention what he's doing to, to yeah. the people of Gaza. And people in his coalition, the politicians are being yelled at by victims, you know, family members of victims of the Hamas attack. There have been incidents where politicians have tried to go to the hospital to, you know, uh, get a photo op con- consoling victims of the attacks and people scream at them and tell them they're not allowed to come in. And it's striking because here in the U.S., uh, you know, after 9-11, there was just a total rallying around the flag and a consolidation of support for George Bush, Giuliani, became America's mayor, and it was very difficult to dissent against the Republican uh, government because people were just, there was a sense of needing to rally together as a country, which I found terrifying at the time. But here in Israel, it seems like this, when this attack first happened, I thought, oh, this is going to be 
good for Netanyahu. It's going to consolidate support around him. You know, they'll have like a wartime coalition and people will stop complaining, but it doesn't seem to be the case at all. It seems like it's actually public disfavor against Netanyahu has risen. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I think what the difference is, is that it's kind of like the ties between the U.S. actions and 9-11, you know, are either non-existent or tenuous. They're not direct. But a lot of people in Israel can see Netanyahu is done as directly contributing to this debacle. There was a very good piece in Vox by Zach Beecham on October 9 called Benjamin Netanyahu Failed Israel. And the points that he's making there, I think, are widely understood and shared in Israel. One is that to stay out of prison, he's beefed up, you know, settlement on the West Bank. And so there's violence there. They moved the troops to the West Bank and away from Gaza. And secondly, his government has been playing footsie with Hamas for a very long time now. And that's part of like a strategy to keep the Palestinians divided and also to keep, you know, anything good emerging in Gaza. So, yeah, they, they bear a lot of responsibility. And I think a lot of people in Israel understand this. I mean, and in, in addition, just to like the, the intelligence failures that are kind of unbelievable. So, you know, things things are not good for him. But the way the situation is, people are still in practice rallying around him because what else are they going to do at this at this moment when the attacks from Hamas and Islamic Jihad and are coming and Hezbollah is, is shooting rockets from the north and he's unpopular but in power. <laughs> so, yeah. But, but yeah, I would recommend that people look at the Zach Beecham article to understand kind of the symbiotic relationship here between the Netanyahu government and, and Hamas. Speaking of Hamas, we also should say that Hamas is not Palestine and that although Hamas has been in power since 2006 in the Gaza Strip, that doesn't mean that, um, as some have claimed, that all Palestinians in the Gaza Strip are responsible for the actions of Hamas. I, Vox had a piece recently that referred to a poll from this past summer where 44% of Gazan voters said they would choose Hamas. Uh, if there were elections, they haven't, haven't been elections for a long time, since 2006. But it shows you how, how well Hamas represents the Palestinian yeah. people, right? Yeah, I mean, that's still a terrifying amount of people who would, who would support Hamas, right? It's still a big number, and it's unfortunate, right. but it well, doesn't mean they that... They control all the social services in the yeah. area. Yeah, you know, but, you know, look, there are also Palestinians on the West Bank, and the... West Bank leadership is incredibly different from, from Hamas. But Hamas is like fundamentalist Islam, uses terroristic methods, the worst sort. There have been armed Palestinian resistance things going on for a very, very long time. And it's not, Hamas is, is a part of that, but it's not the whole of it. Yeah. We in MHI are committed to is democracy within Israel, and that includes for the, the non-Jews of Israel and that so-called judicial reform of Netanyahu, and democracy in Palestine, so that each people can decide for themselves what they want to do instead of having someone else decide for them, and that's about the best you're going to do. 
you know, in, in a place in a world where the laws of capitalism and, you know, the U.S. and Russia and bigger st- Iran, bigger state actors are are still involved. But ev- evidently, there's some myth that exists in parts of the left that if Hamas wins this war, whatever that would mean, that would give democracy to Palestine. I mean, hardly, hardly. They, they haven't, they, they've been able to hold elections. They haven't done so. And frankly, they use the civilians of Gaza as a shield. Literally, they put civilians up in front of them so they don't get, get shot. This is, this is a, a reactionary, theocratic, clearly very anti-Semitic, and I'm talking about anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic organization. There's no prospect of democracy coming from the ranks of Hamas. Yeah. You know, Marxist humanists have, for a very, very, very long time, our whole existence, also affirmed the right of national self-determination as an inviolable right, you know, and that goes back to Lenin and before, but we've always upheld that. And that means the right of national self-determination for Palestine, Palestinian people, and the right of national self-determination for Jews. And I think what's most important about what Raya Dunyaskaya added to this question was the understanding that what is a people gets determined by the people themselves. At one point, they might not see themselves as a people. At another point, they begin to develop a national consciousness. So it's not for others to define who is a nation or what are the criteria of nationhood. Okay, It's up to the people themselves. And we've said that with respect to, you know, the imperialist invasion of Ukraine by Putin. He said, well, the Ukrainians are not really a nation. Well, it's not up to him to decide. The Ukrainians are saying they are. And we have to reiterate that, I I think, right now with the the Israel-Hamas war. Both sides, Palestinians uh, and Jews, see themselves as nations and question of identity has to be respected and the rights of national self-determination have to be upheld. Obviously, that's extremely difficult and it's being violated in every which way right now. But this is the only way out of the slaughter, the horrors that are to come that could even lead to World War III. Another major concern is what this war might mean for the war... The war in Ukraine in terms of funding, in terms of international attention, we... It's concerning, and in terms of why this war has broken out at this moment, I think it's helpful to think of the principle who benefits. You know, I, I don't have any secret intelligence, but if you look at who's being helped by this war, it's... It's not Israel. It's not Netanyahu. It's not Hamas. They're going to be crushed, whether or not you know there's a ground invasion of Gaza. They're going to be crushed. Who who's who's being helped? Iran and above all Vladimir Putin. U.S. attention is being shifted away from Ukraine. There's you know limited money that the U.S. is going to dole out. This is being shifted to Israel. Uh, chaos in the world. Who does it benefit? Vladimir Putin. So if he is not behind this and if Iran is not behind this, well, perhaps they're, they're, they're not directly behind it, but clearly they benefit. I mean, this is just another reason why, why this world war is so concerning because it 
is encouraging and helping some of the most malign regimes in the world. Mm-hmm. Another point that we wanted to make is just how stunning is Israel's intelligence failure was in this case. And to point out this shows how all the U.S. aid in the world can't fix incompetent government. You know, the Netanyahu government was solely focused on keeping Netanyahu out of Netanyahu out of jail. It wasn't really focused on like the needs of Israeli citizens or any kind of peace process, and led to some real security lapses. This was like a really stunning failure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why the intelligence failure. Strictly speaking, talking about intelligence, I don't know why that happened, whether there was intelligence generated by, by you know, the Israeli intelligence forces that got ignored, but the security failure of moving troops to the West Bank, of encouraging political failure involved in you know, encouraging Hamas, you know, so you keep the Palestinian leadership divided those those bigger failures are just just mind-boggling as well i mean i think that the point is true that you know you can have great intelligence but you can't know the future and and security the overall security and political failures involved here i think are going to have reverberations within israel for a very long time to come one principle that as marxist humanists we often talk about is looking for opposition we can support within each country rather than seeing countries as monolithic in their composition um, to look for points of resistance within both Israel and Palestine. Um, And so one of the points we wanted to make is just encouraging that sort of thinking on the left rather than seeing this conflict as some sort of eternal conflict between two monolithic sites, realizing that within each country there are rulers and oppressed, they're exploited, and those who are exploiting, and um, there are oppositions within each country working for some kind of resolution other than bloodshed. Right, and and it's easier to see, you know, in, in Israel, especially now, uh, when there's such widespread and vocal opposition to not Netanyahu, but, you know, we as you mentioned, there has been this movement to defend democracy, defend the judicial system, and that doesn't have anything to do directly to do with the Palestinian situation. But the Palestinian situation, but among the these Israeli left, both Zionist, non-Zionist, anti-Zionist, you know, it's it's not a monolithic country. There are people holding out at least the the prospect, the hope, something other than continued bloodshed, and there is some of that. You know, on on the Palestinian side as well, not within Hamas, but as, you know, even the Palestinian leadership is not monolithic. And I've read at least one person related to the Palestinian leadership saying we need to rethink about the possibility of a binational state, which is something like the left wing of Zionism upheld as a possibility prior to 1948, you know, and like Peter Beinart in the U.S. is, you know, a Jew has been been talking about that. Also among, you know, Palestinians, there is, I'm not saying how widespread it is that, I don't know, but but there is some openness to the the idea of having a state that would recognize the national right of self-determination of both peoples. Finally, we should just say that the, there's a real danger of this conflict escalating to a wider regional conflict 
or even World War Three. Without the right kind of diplomatic moves, things could really get hairy. Yeah, I mean, things can always go wrong. <laughs> and I don't think that uh, Iran wants to enter into the war. I don't think Hezbollah wants to enter in, into the war right now. But things can happen. And, you know, there's such outrage and anger on the streets, you know, in, in Turkey, in Lebanon, and everywhere. The United States is not in a very stable situation right now. Lots of things could go wrong. And making a prediction, I have no way of even putting a subjective probability, but but it is a very scary moment, even, you know, when you're more or less halfway around the world. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure we will return to this topic a lot in future episodes, so stay tuned. We're uh, very pleased to welcome today um, the authors of a uh, 2021 book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. Uh, it's Stephen Nadler and Lawrence Shapiro are the co-authors, and both of them are with us on Radio for Humanity today. Stephen Nadler is Vilas Research Professor and the William H. Hay the second professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His books include Think Least of Death, Spinoza on How to Live and How to Die. And Lauren Shapiro is the Berend Ench professor of philosophy, uh, also at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And his books include The Miracle Myth, which I'm reading right now. The uh, subtitle is Why Belief in the Resurrection and the Supernatural is Unjustified. So welcome uh, to both of you. Thanks for having Thank us. You. And so the book is When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. You guys are both professional philosophers who generally write about topics that are different from the topic of this book, though related. So I assume that the audience for your writing is generally other philosophers, scholars of Jewish thought, but this book is on bad thinking and it's written for a general audience and the writing is very accessible and quite lucid. Um, so why, what were your motivations behind writing this particular book? Like, who was the audience and, and what, were your, what were you intending to do with it? it it's true that it's uh, different from what Larry and I each generally write about in articles and books. Uh, at the same time, it comes out of what we do every day in the classroom, which is um, discussed with undergraduates and graduate students what philosophy is, what good thinking is, what bad thinking is, and how to recognize it. And so I think the book is is a sort of a natural extension of our lives as philosophy teachers. And we try to incorporate into the book many of the lessons that we also hope to get across to our students, successfully or not. As to why we wrote this particular book in this way at this time, I think the recent American history speaks for itself. There's always been bad thinking. There's always been people who adopt conspiracy theories or are given to ridiculous beliefs that they take on without any justification. But with the increasing power of social media, the expansion of television sources of news beyond the networks, and the general lack of trust in certain sources, and despite the wealth of media sources, the general 
compartmentalization of where people get their information from. I think we're in a particularly crucial moment in American history, American political history, social history, and economic history. And the number of conspiracy theories that are flying around about vaccines, about elections, and so on, it seemed particularly a particularly good time to sound the alarm and try to provide some diagnosis as philosophers to what's going on. I, I would add that... Um... I agree with everything Steve just said. He he described my motivations well, but I also have family members who believe in conspiracies. And just speaking personally, it's 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 very frustrating to know personally people who believe things for all the wrong reasons. And part part of writing this book was not just a response to the kind of bad thinking that we saw behind election denialism vaccine denialism, but also I have personal acquaintances who believe these crazy conspiracies, and it was kind of therapeutic for me to, to write something about that. Yeah, and it's not always on uneducated people. You know, speaking of conspiracies, I got into it with a an economist. I'm an economist. This guy, you know, used to publish in statistics, so he knows statistics very well, but he's you know, 9-11 conspiracy buff. So yeah. it goes up and down. There's um, a, a well-known ph philosopher of science. We mentioned him, I think, in passing in the book, who knows all about confirmation, Bayesianism. He, he's equipped with all the statistics that, that he needs in order to evaluate the justification for a belief. And yet he's a, uh, he's a JFK conspiracy theorist. He's a World Trade Center conspiracy theorist, so Sandy Hook conspiracy theorist. So yeah, bad thinking happens to very smart people. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I really got a kick out of the title of the book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. That reveals my age, sorry to say. I don't think younger people are likely to get the pun in the title. So could you explain the title a bit? Uh, both the the pun, and more importantly, you say when bad thinking happens to good people. But you argue in the book that people who engage in bad thinking regarding who won the 2020 election, the origins of COVID, birtherism, and a lot of other things, they're often doing something that isn't just logically wrong, but morally wrong. So in what sense are they good people? Well, the title comes from the old an old philosophical problem that goes all the way back to antiquity. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And it's the motivation for a problem in philosophical theology. How do we justify the existence of imperfections and sin and suffering in a world created by all wise, all knowing, all perfect, all powerful God? I think part of the reference to good people in the title, and maybe Larry would agree with me on this, is we're being a little generous there because a lot of the bad thinking occurs in bad people. But I would also say that just because somebody falls into bad thinking and because of that bad thinking ends up doing bad things doesn't make them a bad person. So we want to distinguish the, the action from the agent. And we hopefully, maybe we're being a bit optimistic, we hope that even people who do bad things, morally wrong things because of their bad thinking, still perhaps have the best of intentions. Of course, the title is also a, a play on uh, Harold, Harold Kushner's book, when, when Bad Things Happen to Good People, which was published in the early 80s. Kushner, I don't know if he's still alive, actually. He was a 
conservative rabbi and interested in problem of evil and things like that. And I think that was in, in part an inspiration for our, for our, our title. And I, I do want to second what Steve was saying about the, the kind of people we're, we're judging to be good. Certainly, there are a lot of bad people thinking poorly as well, but you know, quite a few people who are good people. They're, they have other people's interests at heart. They they try to do the right thing, and they've just been misled by the the kinds of things they're they're seeing on the internet or or reading in social media. And I think these people would really be concerned to discover that they've been duped this sort of this this way. What's your case for why bad thinking is is often morally wrong? And and how does that get into this question of referring to people who are have bad thinking as good people? Uh, the case for why bad thinking is morally wrong draws depends on a, a connection between thought and action. Oftentimes, bad thinking might not be harmful at all. In fact, it might even be beneficial. We can imagine situations where believing something without sufficient evidence is actually good for you in, in some sort of way. If uh, if I've been given a, a terrible diagnosis by my uh, my oncologist. It might be beneficial for me to ignore the evidence, ignore what he's telling me, and believe that the cancer is not going to metastasize. It's not going to kill me. My my life, what's left of it, could be much richer if I believe on poor grounds that I'll continue to survive. So we have in mind those people whose bad thinking leads them to unjustified, unjustified beliefs that in turn lead to harmful behavior. So examples are easy to come by. We've we've mentioned this before, but you know the the more people who believe that vaccines are are harmful, the fewer people will end up taking vaccines, and the harder it'll be to harder harder it'll be to eliminate disease from our population. People who deny that Biden was elected fairly are threatening the integrity of our our democracy. So we have cases of bad thinking that are that are harmless or maybe even helpful. But when bad thinking gets put to actions that cause harm, that's the kind of thinking that we're concerned with. I think this is also an additionally interesting philosophical question as as to whether their thoughts can themselves be morally wrong. Um, and it seems quite likely they can be. I mean, you can have immoral thoughts, uh, even if they don't lead to action. But I, you know, that's a totally different set of questions. But when we say that bad thinking is morally wrong, what we really are referring to is what Larry described as when bad thinking leads to bad act, bad actions. Yeah, I, I, uh, later in this interview, I want to uh, maybe explore that uh, some more, you know, and, and the question of whether this kind of thinking is always leading to bad actions, you know, even though it helps the, the people who engage in it, maybe it just rots our, our minds. <laughs> And our morality. But let me just ask a really simple question. Um, throughout the book, you use the term epistemic stubbornness. And did you mean the same thing as dogmatism or maybe something like dogmatic attitude? Or is that is, is there something different? That, that was a good question. I, I'm wondering about this myself. I tend to think of a dogmatic person as uh, making a claim that is in some sense, independent of considerations of its truth or justification. They're going to believe, say, in God, no matter what you tell them, 
whether they have reasons or not, they're going to insist that, that God exists. Whereas I see epistemically stubborn people as recognizing the importance of evidence for a belief, but refusing to give up the sort of evidence that they they might be holding on to in face of in face of stronger counter evidence. So it could be, and I'm not sure about this, but it could be that dogmatic people are unconcerned about reasons and justification in a way that an epistemically stubborn person might be. I don't know, Steve, do you have a different thought on that? Yeah, it is a good question. I can think of people who are dogmatic, you know, you're dogmatic in your adoption of a belief. And so you adopt it um, without any evidence whatsoever. You just think, oh, yes, that's that's true. But if you're willing in the face of counter evidence to uh, revise or abandon the belief, then that's maybe where dogmatism and stubbornness part ways, because the epistemic stubborn, epistemically stubborn person uh, is not willing to recognize the value of the counter evidence. I'm not so sure. I might disagree with Larry on whether the epistemically stubborn person is self-consciously epistemically stubborn, whether they're aware of the counter evidence and that the counter evidence does, in fact, refute their belief, but they're going to hold on to it anyway. It may be that the epistemically epistemically stubborn person just refuses to recognize the validity of the counter evidence. But I'm sure, you know, I think there's a broad spectrum, both for dogmatism and for epistemic stubbornness. So if I'm getting this right, dogmatism, as you're using it, refers to the grounds or lack of grounds for adopting a belief, and epistemic stubbornness has to do with hanging on, come what may. So it's actually worse than dogmatism because somebody might adopt a belief for dogmatic reasons but be persuaded by good evidence, whereas the epistemically uh, stubborn person would not. Have I got that right? Perhaps, because <laughs> I, I also think somebody could be dogmatic about certain beliefs and have arrived at those beliefs in a perfectly reasonable way, but they're just going to stand by those beliefs come what may. So I, I think there's just a great deal of overlap between the two. And I think it might be that calling somebody dogmatic and calling them epistemically stubborn amounts to the same thing, or maybe dogmatic is just um, a more colloquial way to refer to somebody who's epistemically stubborn. You don't see people walking around saying, oh, you're just being epistemically stubborn. But you do see people accusing others of being dogmatic. And so you're, 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 you're saying basically uh, the problem that is pervasive is epistemic stubbornness, okay, which sometimes is colloquially called uh, dogmatism. And it's logically wrong. And it's morally wrong when it has uh, harmful effects. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I can yeah, live with okay. that. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I just I just like to make sure that I got the, the the pieces of the argument all kind of together there. Yeah, I just think I think in the history of philosophy, I can think of philosophers who are accurately described as dogmatists, but they're not epistemically stubborn. Take Descartes, for example, who propounds fairly dogmatically certain doctrines, but he will offer you arguments for those doctrines and will defend them. You may not accept his defense and you may not accept his doctrines. He's being dogmatic. He's standing by his guns, but not without arguments. So that would be the difference between him and we're calling the epistemically stubborn person. And the sense in which he's dogmatic is then 
He's not abandoning. He's not abandoning his beliefs because he doesn't recognize that your arguments are better than his arguments. And in what sense is that? Uh, the, the, okay. the difference. Yeah. What differentiates him from an epistemically stubborn person is: imagine you have two people who both have epistemically good arguments for their positions. Right. No, I un I understand the difference. I don't understand the sense in which he's dogmatic. Because he's standing by. I think the way I'm using dogmatic here is that he's standing by his position and the arguments he has for his position. He just doesn't see that the counter arguments are strong enough to override his. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking about it differently, Steve. But um, may maybe it amounts to. I'm not sure if it amounts to the same thing. I'm I'm imagining a, a dogmatic person. Um, I mean. You could come across someone who just states things dogmatically with very little reflection. Uh, here's how things are. This is what you need to do, or this is the right position to hold, and doesn't attempt to offer justifications for these claims. Whereas I see the epistemically stubborn person as offering justifications for claims. That's the kind of epistemic uh, aspect of, of their stubbornness. But refusing to consider contrary evidence or fallacies in their reasoning. Yeah, that's why I think I'll stick with my uh, suggestion of a, of a spectrum yeah. dogmatism, going from covering all the positions we described. Well, doesn't the notion of dogmatism usually mean that you're appealing to a fixed set of beliefs as your proof? So you might say, well, I know that human civilization is so many years old because it says so in the bible so your 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 appealing your appeals to truth are like specific to like a a a, a fixed way of thinking but what if the fixed way of thinking you're appealing to is logic the laws of logic well that will be different than dogma right that's well, how be the principles might be well i don't know are are the you know are the basic axioms of of logic and i think we're i don't think we need to really distinguish here between dogmatism and epistemic stubbornness if they're if they're both on a spectrum and there's overlap um uh, well i have one other follow-up about the moral question about talking about bad thinking is morally wrong you know there's fair amount of conversation around the the problem of trumpism conspiracism etc in this country a fair amount of the conversation that says that the problem the problem is that we, or the problem will be maybe solved if we try to understand these people better and that criticizing them is is part of the problem because it's just repeating the sort of elitism that they are responding to you guys don't seem to be swayed by that type of thinking around um these problems why is that I, I, we don't i think we certainly do see the economic and social problems that will cause people to abandon traditional ways of resolving them and maybe grow frustrated with politics as usual and turn against the powers that be at the moment and throw their lot in on the other extreme the problem that we see though what really strikes me as bad thinking is not that is not the anger and the resentment and the lost hopes of a large segment of the American population. I mean, the system is not working for a hell of a lot of people. The problem is why, why think that Trump is the right person or even a person who's interested 
in doing anything about your problems. The resentment and the anger on the one hand, I think are fully justified and should be directed at the system. But why buy the, the solution, the alleged solutions, the rhetoric of this demagogue who is a proven liar and uh, that's the least of his moral shortcomings. That, that's where I think the bad thinking really comes in. Larry, did you want to expand on that, on that rant? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that in the book, maybe we didn't succeed, but we, we, we tried not to be snarky or discourteous. We, we don't want to alienate an audience of of people who we regard as 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 bad thinkers, um, people who we would probably uh, not want to hang out with, because that that kind of response to to these people will just perpetuate the kind of polarization we 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 find today. So, Sorry, I, do you want to tell them what the original title of the book was going to be? <laughs> what, what was it? When when bad thing when? No, it was on American stupidity. Oh, yeah. We didn't think that would be a very effective title, and our editor agreed. I, I actually think it's really important, uh, even though people might take offense, to say that certain kinds of thinking are, are morally wrong. I think W.K. Clifford, way back when, made this argument a decade or two ago. In particular, Richard Dawkins came uh, back and resuscitated this, there's a very widespread feeling that it's noble somehow makes you morally superior, you know, even to hold things, you know, to hold beliefs without sufficient justification. That's faith, you know, and I'm a moral committed person because I hold things on the basis of faith, even though the evidence doesn't seem to go, you know, along with it. And, you know, Clifford said what Dawkins said is no, you know this is this is not a noble way of being. It's a it's a very harmful, socially harmful. It hurts the way we live. It hurts other people. This is this is not a good way way to be. And so I think that because this is not generally recognized and accepted, uh, it has to be said and it has to be argued for. You know, even though certain people might take offense, I don't see any other way, frankly. I'm not sure. I mean, I agree with you that holding things on on basis of faith alone could land you in trouble. I, I think there are a lot of occasions. I, I mentioned one where I might sort of believe on faith that my oncologist is is incorrect in his diagnosis or in her diagnosis. But what we want to avoid are are those beliefs that lead to the kind of toxic behavior that is harming our society today. And I agree with you that you need to call out people when they're forming beliefs, making judgments on insufficient evidence. But there's a lot of literature in, in psychology and sociology that, that shows that calling someone an idiot is not going to be helpful at all. So you have to, you have to maintain a, a kind of, I think, courtesy or decorum in your in your interactions with people with whom you, you, you disagree, if, if for no reason other than the fact that you're more likely to uh, persuade them of something when you take that attitude. Right. I mean, there's one issue of, you know, how you talk to people. The other is, I think, the issue of is, is, is the nature of the case. I mean, 
Is it, in fact, a noble thing or is it morally wrong to engage in such behavior, whether or not you communicate that to an individual or not? Uh, I, I don't know. I think those are, are, are distinct questions, right? Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah, I, th I think if, if you believe humility is a virtue, then you're probably going to find taking the, presenting yourself as a moral paragon somewhat distasteful. I think it all depends upon what you think is the proper attitude to take towards your own status as a knower. Do you do you engage in self-promotion or do you recognize, and I know we'll come to Socrates later, that whatever you do know, it's hardly anything compared to what you don't know. Just to give uh, our listeners a, a taste for the flow of your book, you begin basically uh, with, well, you have an introduction and then talk about rules for reasoning and procedures for reasoning well, logic. Uh, and some of that discussion is about the kinds of problems that people commonly find it hard to reason well about. And one of the most important of these, I think, is the so-called base rate fallacy. And you, you introduce this using the common example of a witness at a trial, and he testifies that he saw a blue taxi cab. And when you evaluate his testimony, though, we shouldn't ignore the fact that, okay, he's not lying and his perceptions are pretty accurate, but 85% of the cabs in the city are green cabs, not blue cabs. And he said he saw a blue cab. So even though he's not lying and his perceptions are pretty accurate, he's still probably wrong. Okay, so you then take that kind of textbook example and go on to discuss the far more serious problem of conspiracy theory. So what does this blue versus green cab problem have to do with the acceptance of conspiracy theories? The, the base rate fallacy involves thinking that the evidence you have for some the truth of some proposition can be in a way independent of the probability of the event that that proposition is, is naming. So let's change the case to something a little bit more intuitive. Imagine you have a six-year-old daughter who is generally pretty reliable. I mean, we could put a number on it if we want. You know, 80% 80, 80 of the things she reports as being true, she's right about. Something like that. And she comes home one day and tells you that a fire alarm went off in school. And you think, okay, she's telling me that a fire alarm went off in school. She's generally pretty reliable. There's nothing too unusual about a fire alarm going off in school. There are drills for this, you know once a month or once a semester or whatever. So you, you you accept what she's saying. She comes home another day and tells you that there's been an alien invasion at school. Now, she's just as reliable today as she was when she came home and reported the, the fire alarm. It just is the probability of an alien invasion is so extremely low that her statement affirming such an invasion is no longer good enough evidence for you to in, in order to justify your belief that this alien invasion really really occurred. And this takes us to conspiracy theories. If, if we're told that there's that the Democratic Party is has has been taken over by Satan worship worshiping pedophiles and, and lots of celebrities from Hollywood as, as well, this is just a really implausible claim. It's seems really unlikely that there really be a, a Satan-worshipping group of pedophiles governing the Democratic Party right now. And because of its extreme unlikeliness, unlikelihood, in order to justify a belief that this is actually going on, we need really, really strong evidence, much stronger than uh, I think anyone's ever come up with. 
you know, and the same, you know, if you think that the pyramids were built by aliens, well, that's really improbable. And so because of the improbability of that event, we need much stronger evidence than we would for uh, justifying belief in a normal sort of event. So that's that's the message I take away from the, the base rate fallacy example involving the taxi cabs. The less likely something is that you're trying to justify, the better the evidence you'll need in order to justify it. Yeah, let me let me, let me just, just say something. I think it's, it's important, uh, and you say this in the book, but you didn't m- mention it today. It's important not to, I think what, you know, all of the examples show is that you don't throw away what you already know. And, you know, so you don't just listen to the the witness at the trial and you don't just listen to your daughter. You don't forget about what you know. That's right. Right. Yeah. You you want to, when when seeking to justify a belief, you, you want to take on board all evidence relevant to that to that belief. So in, in saying that an alien invasion is unlikely, that depends on what I know. <laughs> I know that chances are aliens have never visited Earth, and ch- chances are little girls will get confused or imagine things or, or lie. Uh, and taking all this on board, we have more reason to doubt the testimony of this girl when reporting an alien invasion than we do when she's reporting a fire alarm. And likewise, we have more reason to doubt the testimony of someone who is claiming that the Democratic Party has been taken over by uh, Satan-worshipping pedophiles than we do if the same person testified to it raining in Seattle. I, I like your example of um, the six-year-old and the school because having a this sounds like the conversation I have with my kids all the time when they come home from school and they say, someone told me this, and so I think it's true, and I have to say to them, well, let's actually think about yep, that. How exactly. likely That's is X to have actually been the case? You believe it because someone just, some kids at school said it? Does that mean, it? let's actually think through this whole scenario. It also reminds me of, we had a conversation a long time ago on this podcast with Keith Con Harris, who wrote a book about denialism. And he, he said, you know, one of the best ways of combating denialists is to say, look, how let's actually imagine that what you say is true. For instance, that the Holocaust was faked. Imagine how complex that conspiracy would have to be. Imagine the enormous scale that of this conspiracy that you like took millions of Jews and like hid them somewhere and and faked all the stuff and no one ever talked about it and you somehow were able to cover up this enormous this 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 enormous conspiracy of faking the holocaust that would like be a claim about the things that humans could could coordinate and achieve in secret on a mass scale that would that defies any like baseline understanding what humans are capable of Um, yes that's exactly the the strategy that I think you need to you need to keep in the front of your mind when you when you face one of these incredible sounding train uh, claims. Yeah, that the Democrats could be secretly worshiping Satan and having a pedophile ring. That would be an incredible thing for them to have pulled off with no evidence and never being caught in a pizza restaurant for no less. In a pizza <laughs> restaurant, it would just be so impressive and like defy all of our understanding of what humans are capable of keeping secret and coordinating. Yeah, when 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 Robert F. Kennedy said that um, Junior. COVID was sparing Ashkenazi Jews. I thought, why, why didn't someone tell me that? I'm an Ash, Ashkenazi Jew and I had Jew and I had COVID. Um, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. I didn't yeah. get the memo, I guess. 
<laughs> they should have gone to synagogue, Lack. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that's right. Yeah. So only some of your book is about logic and the problems involved in reasoning. There's a lot more. Above all, you talk about Socrates, who you call the hero of the book. What does Socrates have to do with what you call our epistemological crisis today? He has everything to do with it, not because he's the source of it, but because his mission in life um, in late 5th, early 4th century Athens was to resolve the epistemological crisis affecting Athenian democracy, which was essentially people holding beliefs that they couldn't adequately defend um, and then using those beliefs to pursue courses of action, which he felt would be unjustified and immoral. I mean, there's one of the earliest dialogues of Plato has Socrates meeting his old friend Euthyphro, and Euthyphro is going off to court to prosecute his father for murder because his father let somebody die. And Socrates says, well, Euthyphro, you must think this is the pious thing to do, so tell me what is piety. And Euthyphro cannot defend his understanding of piety. The, the point of the dialogue is not whether it's right or wrong to prosecute your father for murder, but rather whether it's right or wrong, morally acceptable to pursue a course of action without really knowing the moral character of what you're doing. And you can't really know the moral character of what you're doing unless you know something about morality, about ethics. And so Socrates' quest, of what he calls his quest for wisdom, is essentially a quest to see what people think they know and what don't they really know and try to enlighten them as, and maybe try to even instill some kind of epistemic, epistemological humility in them and get them to recognize that you can't claim to know something unless you've investigated it deeply and you can defend your answers. And that's, you know, that's exactly the opposite of epistemic, epistemic stubbornness. These are people who are willing to entertain that they might be wrong. Yeah, I thought the discussion of, of, of Socrates was very enlightening and, and uh, one of the most, for me, helpful parts of the book. And you connected what you've just said to this thing that Socrates said, which I think there's an argument in the book that it's not really translated correctly. The unexamined law and unexamined life is hardly worth living. Can you talk some about that? Yeah. What, what's I, the real meaning of that statement? Um, the way I understand the statement um, is an unexamined life is a life in which you don't use your rational faculties to their fullest capacity and um, to their fullest. Uh, and so you're not exercising the proper human function. You're not exercising, you're not living the proper human kind of life because the human life is defined by its rationality. And if you are not examining your beliefs, if you're not examining your actions in the light of your beliefs, if you're not subjecting your values to the most critical test of all to see whether they are the true values, then you are not living as a human being should live. Um, and that, as, this, you know, as the phrase goes in the dialogue, that is not a life worth living for a human being. It's not that, the, it's not that you should kill yourself, but rather you should try to move yourself up to the level where you are someone who is flourishing as a human being, that you're exercising the human capacities with excellence. I think this is hugely important. I, I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, but uh, to, to me, this really was clarifying because it, it goes to the nature of the kind of crisis I think we're, we're facing and what it means to be human and what we're capable of and what there's a lot of resistance to that yeah. kind of life. 
Yeah. It's easy to live an unexamined life. You watch TV, you, uh, you find ways to distract or entertain yourself, and you never really subject yourself to the kind of critical examination that you might subject others to. One of the great and most prevalent sayings in ancient Greek philosophy and in ancient Greek drama, and this was something that was inscribed over the Oracle of Delphi, know yourself. That's, that's the essence of the examined life, know yourself. Or as, as John Stuart Mill put it, uh, better, better a Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Right. Yeah, and that kind of sounds easy to people, and it goes off their backs because they think they know themselves, and they think they know a lot of things, and and that kind of goes to Socrates' whole enterprise of saying, "Look, I, I don't, I'm not making claims that I know, but I know that you don't know either. So, like, you got to take this seriously." And they, they didn't want to take it seriously. <laughs> So they said, drink some hemlock or something like that, right? Yeah, it didn't end well for Socrates. But as he said, you know, I could have escaped from prison, but where else would I go where they would allow me to do what I do, which is to do philosophy? He would rather die than not be able to engage in philosophical inquiry and lead an examined life. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, 
are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So, so most of the book deals with belief in the sense of judging whether a proposition is true or false. But how central is this to our epistemological crisis now? Uh, might people who believe crazy and demonstrably false things actually be playing a different language game? For example, people who believe or say they believe that the, that the 2020 election was stolen, are they considering a proposition like Biden won and there was no outcome determining fraud? and saying it is literally false. Um, Dan Sperber, a French anthropologist, has argued for a long time that many beliefs don't fit the standard philosophical model. They are only semi-propositional. And Amanda Marcotte of Salon and others, and we've discussed Marcotte's opinion on this on the podcast before, think that election denialism is frequently expressive and performative. People aren't judging the truth value of a proposition, but they're owning the libs or they're like lining up on the right side of where they think they're supposed to line up. They're like um, repeating the party line of their tribe. Uh, rather, um, they're, not, they're not lying, they're bullshitting in uh, Frankfurt's sense. Right, well, Fra you know, Frankfurt's sense of bullshit is, it's not that you're trying to hide the truth, it's you don't care about the truth. You don't care whether what you're saying is true or false. And there's no question that a lot of the election denialism is of that nature. Um, it's cynical. And I think that's the really pernicious thing. It's not the people who fall for the, who fall for the claims of stolen elections. Uh, I mean, they are, of course, the people who we're most worried about because they're in much greater numbers. And when you see these interviews with people at Trump rallies who believe that, for example, I'm, you know, I'm no fan of Kevin McCarthy, but you see them saying Kevin McCarthy is a traitor, he should be executed. And they really believe that. That's, that's scary. What's more pernicious are the cynics who engage in what you're calling expressive and performative language. They're not judging the truth value of the proposition the election was stolen, but they're just using this as a slogan they don't, maybe they do, or maybe they don't realize the fire they're playing with and that people are going to believe this and that's going to lead to things like January 6th. Uh, so yeah, I think there's there's two camps here. The, the people who are performing denialism, they don't really think the election was stolen, but they think they can make political hay out of it. But then there's the great mass of people who naively accept what they hear on Fox News as true. And then they go out and commit heinous acts. Yeah, I, I agree with what, what Steve is saying. There's, I think it's risky to describe uh, as kind of a uniform group the people that we're, we're labeling as, as bad thinkers. We, we do have the, the people who don't care at all about whatever evidence the forensic examinations of elections might turn up. For them, all they care about is having Trump back in office. But then there are other people, and I'm, I'm thinking about people in my family who 
are anti-vax and and hold other sorts of beliefs like that. And these are people who spend a lot of time on the internet doing research. Uh, it's all committing confirmation bias. They're just looking for the research that supports their own beliefs, but they're they're sensitive to evidence. They believe the wrong things for the for the wrong reasons, and yet they're quite confident in their judgments because they regard themselves as having done their due diligence. And in that case, it's a stark contrast to those people who uh, will believe that Trump uh, was fairly elected come what may. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is is the Sperber called, you know, semi-propositional. When you say the election was stolen, it's just not clear what evidence goes along with that and what kind of evidence, you know, would refute it. You know, for some of these people, I, I don't think that they're 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 lying and maybe they're not bullshitting either, but it's like, you know, the real Americans opinion doesn't wish, doesn't prevail, you know, then the election's been stolen from us. So we're in a seems to me a very different kind of situation than looking at discrete propositions like was there, you know, outcome determining fraud? Who got the most votes? Where to really deal with this, we have to deal with you know, some big, complex concept like you know, stolen, and you know, and, and what does that really mean to these people? So I, I'm kind of unsure about the role of logic in 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 dealing with matters like that. Yeah, I think it's always helpful when approaching someone who also a view that you disagree with to ask that person at the start of the conversation what sort of evidence would convince you that you're wrong about this and if they don't have any answer it's pointless to to continue your conversation with this person but i think if they don't have an answer it would it would take a kind of a lot of self deception to think that their position was was still uh, worth defending because to defend something, you have to defend it against contrary reasons. And if there are no contrary reasons, there's no sense to be made of defending something. I'm famous or infamous in some circles for asking exactly that question again and again and again. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's a, a good, it's a good a really strategy. Good question. Yeah. yeah, a good strategy for dealing with such people is simply to ask, why do you believe that? You know, let them constantly make their pronouncements. I find myself doing this often at at dinner tables, I don't have the kinds of problems within my family Larry's having with conspiracy <laughs> theorists. But every once in a while, you run upon somebody who spouts something crazy and you say, well, why do you believe that? Um, and my hope is not to get them to actually give me uh, a meaningful answer, but at least to get them to ask themselves, on what basis have I adopted this, this belief? Why do I think this? I'd like to return to this issue of morality and what's called evidentialism uh, in particular. In your book, you quote W.K. Clifford's statement of what's typically called the strong evidentialist position. This was about 150 years ago he wrote this. And he said it is wrong, he meant ethically wrong, always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And you quote that, but you argue for a weaker version of evidentialism that you say is more reasonable that bad thinking is ethically wrong only when, quote, the beliefs it tolerates cause harm. But Clifford's view, why he said it's always wrong, is that it always causes harm. And what I'm trying to get my head around is it seems to me that your book's conclusion 
implicitly concurs with Clifford and restates his own argument as to why it always causes harm. You're right. It is like a virus, this you know, bad thinking. It infects all strata of society in domains both public and private. It attacks all of us and it harms our material lives as well. It leads to thoughtless behavior and immoral actions. So that seems to be restatement of Clifford's argument as far as I can see it. What am I not seeing here? I would say that take this not as an absolute universal claim, but as a generalization. Um, I can think of some very important instances, and I'll just to use American history. It, to, to me, the belief in a providential God is an unjustified belief. We can even call it bad thinking because there's no evidence to support it, and there's plenty of evidence, plenty of reasons for not believing it. But one of my personal heroes is Dorothy Day, um, a devout Catholic who led, as far as I can tell, a morally exemplary life, especially later in her life. And I think of all the good works that are done by people um, who are motivated by a deep religious faith. You can also come up with other examples of people who engage in morally praiseworthy behavior either without thinking about what they're doing or because they have some superstitious beliefs. So I wouldn't want to commit ourselves to the claim that bad thinking always and necessarily leads to bad behavior. But I do think, and I think it's part of our claim in this book, that generally it's not good for society when bad thinking takes over the important decisions people make in their personal lives, in their politics, uh, and in other domains. I think I get that. So you're saying, okay, for Clifford, this was, you know, an, an absolute position. But for you, when you stated it in the conclusion, it's a generalization that admits of exceptions, uh, like Dorothy Day of the, the Catholic worker, I, I'm mistaken. Exactly. I guess my question then is... Clifford, if also we, Clifford's position seems to be saying that bad thinking or holding unjustified beliefs yeah. is, it, is itself morally wrong. And I don't think I'm willing to commit myself to that claim. I don't think Larry is either, because we bring in the moral question. I mean, it may be, as I said before, that there are certain beliefs or certain, certain thoughts that are immoral, and not just because they lead to immoral action. But I would think for the most part, we're willing to say that the moral aspect of bad thinking comes in when it issues in, be, in deleterious behavior. Right. Uh, I guess this is a, a, a question of, was Clifford a consequentialist? Is that what you're addressing here? Uh, I mean, the way I read Clifford is he says it's harmful to think this way, just to believe, irrespective of whether you do, because this way of thinking has these harmful consequences in society writ, writ large. Right. That's the way I understand what he's saying. I think, you know, you can look at Dorothy Day and say, here's an individual. She had fervent, you know, deep seated religious beliefs, but she did a lot of good. Quite true. But if we're looking at society as a whole, it seems to me it's like if we got a virus that spreads, want to contain that. So irrespective of particular goods or the fact that, uh, you know, it might be prudential, you know, uh, helpful to an individual to believe something without good evidence, the overall societal effect is is, is still very harmful. That, that's kind of the way I look at it. 
that, that does sound Cl- Clifford has some rather colorful if 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 jaw dropping claims in this discussion he has of evidentialism he 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 imagines entering the 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 country tavern with the the coarse workers sitting over their beer unconcerned with whether their superstitious beliefs are can be justified and he 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 views this as as a step toward sinking into barbarism and kind of the end of society and I, I don't think either Steve or I want want to take such a stand. As as Steve said, there are exceptions. I think uh, to this idea that uh, bad thinking will always lead to to, to bad consequences. And I, I I think looking over the passages in the book that you have in mind, if I had to write the book over again, I might be a bit more cautious to to make clear that we didn't want to endorse the kind of position that that Clifford ends up opposing. But I think it's clear enough from the book that we have in mind this more temperate version of evidentialism in in which our concerns are really those cases in which the bad thinking that people exhibit leads to these sorts of terrible consequences like election denialism and vaccine denialism. Yeah, here's one way to frame the question. Um, Would I be willing to give up the Dorothy days for the sake of eliminating the virus altogether? So there'll be no more Dorothy days, but there'll be no more bad thinking at all. Sure, I would make that deal. So, you know, some cases the virus enters somebody and it's benign, maybe even benevolent. Well, benevolent's not the right word, but um, um, beneficial. But maybe it's better to eliminate the virus altogether even if certain people who would act benevolently with the virus. Yeah, so the, on balance, sure, I would make, I would go ahead with that deal. Generally- You would go for, you would go for elimination of the virus? Yes, even if that means- Yeah. Yeah, but Clifford would do it for, for different reasons. But yeah, I would regret the loss of people like Dorothy Day, but on the whole, the, the overall uh, result would be a good one. Namely, there'd be no more bad thinking anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it could be that Dorothy Day would find other justified reasons for engaging in the benevolent behavior that that she did. Yeah, perhaps maybe out of just a deep sense of human sympathy. Yeah, or charity. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps the bad thinking is that she is ascribing some supernatural power to her own, like, sense of like social duty to make the world a better place. And that if we just eliminated that um, need to feel like you're motivated by a higher power to do those sorts of live that sort of life, then maybe that you'd even have um, we'd have a much better world. Um, but it's not that. So you know, her her moral actions are not like dependent on the bad thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, so thank you so much for being able to do this today. And we will, of course, link to the book so people can check out uh, check out the book. This has been a very fruitful discussion. I understand the, the position uh, better than I did. That's more than I can ask for. <laughs> yeah. so we've enjoyed the conversation. We appreciate your having us on and giving us a chance to explain things perhaps better than we may have done parts of the book. Definitely. 
Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 